director George Powell based off of H.G. Wells' novel starring Rod Taylor and Alan Young. It's 1960s The Time Machine. William, let me tell me that you saw this in the theater and you have a program. <laughs> I'm not quite that old. I wasn't I wasn't born yet when this came out, but I certainly saw it plenty of times when I was growing up as a kid on TV. Uh, it, uh, I might have seen it 10 times over the years. Uh, and I always enjoyed it. It's uh, I think it holds up well even today. Uh, when uh, since you're the person that selected this film, maybe I should ask what uh, what interested you about it. This would have been when I was in grammar school. This would have been any time we had a substitute teacher, they would show us this movie. <laughs> or if it was a snow day and there was only ten kids in the whole school, they would we would go to the cafeteria or auditorium and they'd show us this movie. And yes. I loved it. I loved it. What what always uh, what I always liked about it was being that young watching it, just the story itself, and of course with the movie, with the special effects at time, really like uh, my imagination just went wild with this one. Yeah, but the, you know, the, the time travel, even though the time travel doesn't hold up as well, <laughs> just the time travel and just the, the the little adventure that he goes on, you know, seeing seeing how they done the him moving through time you know we're seeing we're outside the uh we're looking at outside of the craft looking at him but we're still seeing kind of what right. he's seeing the way they done it that was kind of oh, I, well, just, I just all that stop, it. stop motion uh, yeah. effects that went, won an oscar actually uh, for, yeah yeah. Uh, yeah that stuff is very exciting to the imagination particularly for children i i had exactly the same experience I, uh, this was one of a handful of films that I guess because the books were in you know the high school curriculum and maybe even in the grammar school curriculum, uh, they always trotted out either the movie itself or a film strip with yeah. scenes from the movie. So yeah, I so, saw it many times that way as well. I don't uh, know if I've seen the film strip or if it was just a uh, TV on a cart with the VCR. Oh, that <laughs> yes. Wheel out, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right, yes. Well, it uh, it it's safe and perhaps that's what makes it a little um a little archaic now uh the uh and it may have actually been in 1960 and looking at some of the reviews from variety and some of the other uh you know critics that were writing about it at the time it, it, it george powell who was uh, uh i guess uh, uh, hungarian by birth eventually coming to the united states and he established himself as um the inventor i guess of uh a, a replacement animation he had a technique that was not the same as like uh, what uh, ray harryhausen was doing ray harryhausen incidentally worked for him uh, on the puppetoons series at one point during the war they uh, helped him with a series uh, of uh sergeant snafu i think was the character which i guess was meant for the for the troops right uh anyway uh Harry Housen's technique and Willis O'Brien's technique was to create figurines in uh, uh, rubber uh, with wire or metal armatures and animate them on miniature sets. Uh, uh, George Powell's technique was to create puppets that had replaceable limbs and replaceable faces so that for one character, you might have a box of 100 heads and each head had a different expression on it. And so in between, rather than, I mean, they moved the figure as well, but yeah. in between frames, they would replace the head 
uh, or replace the hands or the feet or whatever needed. Uh, so that was a different technique, and it was very popular and very successful. Puppetoons at one time was, you know, world-renowned. Everybody was a household name, I suppose you could say. Uh, and so he used that the success of that to branch into other movies. And that's when he started to, I guess he, he was, uh, I wouldn't say he was a rival because apparently they had a friendship, but him and Walt Disney sort of traveled similar paths. Um, they were guys that started doing uh, animation and then eventually branched into full-blown, you know, uh, live action films using their experience in uh, animation to do special effects, which, you know, very few other people uh, were able to do at that time. You know, special effects was in its infancy in those days. But the uh, some of the guys that came from the time machine uh, ended up working for decades afterwards. Um, Wa Chang, I think his name is, Wa Ming Chang. Uh, he uh, was responsible for designing some of the most memorable props from Star Trek, the original series, including the communicator. Right. So you could say in the sense that this fellow did all these wonderful special effects in different uh, different movies, and uh, he designed a prop in Star Trek which actually, which actually had an effect on how cell phones came to be designed because, yeah. you know, I mean, that's kind of extraordinary when you think about it. <laughs> you talk about a legacy. And he was involved with a lot of, he was involved with the Outer Limits. He had a, a company called Projects Unlimited and another company later called Centaur Productions or something like that. And basically they did special effects for TV shows and movies. And they were working up into, uh, into the 70s, I think. So, uh, Certainly, the special effects in this are a big feature in, in especially interesting uh, children, you know, young people. Yeah. Uh, because it is kind of dazzling to see as a kid. Um, the uh, problem with George Powell, I guess, is that he was very much of that old school. And uh, by the time you get into the 60s, uh, these completely artificial films, as delightful as they seen now looking back in, in retrospect they must have seemed old-fashioned in their time to a lot of audiences that were looking sort of looking for something that was a little more uh you know uh avant-garde yeah uh, but uh, we look back at it now and we say well this is like a perfect entertainment uh he uh, the most of the stuff that he did in his in his life george powell was family oriented but i guess that was a requirement of anybody working in the studio system uh, and he did films like uh, Destination Moon, which I guess is considered one of the first uh, major films about space travel, at least in the, in, in the United States, in the American film industry. Uh, very elaborate, a lot of heavy research, still considered to this day to be sort of a, a landmark or a milestone in, in, in space travel movies. Uh, and I guess Chelsea Bonestall, was that his name? The artist that painted those backdrops. I think Kubrick tried to get him for uh, 2001. But 2001 was, I guess, done 15 years or so later. And that was another great leap beyond what George Powell had done. I think we talked about Destination Moon and Conquest of Space a little bit when we did our 2001 episode. Yeah. And one of the problems with George Powell's movies, I think, is always on the... Um, 
the drama side, uh, the conquest of space and destination moon seem very corny now, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the the emphasis seems for George Powell to have been to create these beautiful productions with very colorful sets and um, very elaborate special effects, uh, but not so much focusing on uh, getting scripts that were really sophisticated or uh, uh, adult, uh, you know, in their approach to things. Because I have to say, though, the Time Machine script is pretty good. I mean, oh, it's yeah. pretty close to the original novel. They change it because, uh, out of necessity, really, H.G. Uh, Wells' original story was too downbeat. Uh, they had a, they had to add the, the uh, romance angle, which in the original book would have been ridiculous because the Eloy are actually not really completely recognizable as humans. They're almost like fairy creatures. They're much smaller than than humans, and uh, you know it would have been weird to have uh, the time traveler fall in love with an Eloy. He protects her after he rescues her. She comes into the story later in the book than in the movie. Uh, and uh, he loses her in a forest fire that he creates when he's trying to fend off the Morlocks by starting a fire. So she gets dragged back into the fire and I guess she succumbs. It's not really absolutely clear what happens to her, if I remember correctly, but she succumbs to the fire uh, that he himself has created. But there's no suggestion at the end of the of the book that he's going back to to rejoin uh, 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 Weena. Yeah. Uh, the end of the book is different uh, in from the movie in that uh, he uh, is last seen by his friend Philby, I guess, yeah. uh, who was played here by in the movie by uh, Alan Young. He's last seen going back into the room with the time machine with a with a camera, sort of saying, "Well, you guys didn't believe me, but now I'm going to just stay here a moment. And I'll come back." Yeah. <laughs> and he's never seen again, according to Philby. He's he's been waiting for years for him to return, and so the assumption is, <clears throat> whether he went back in time or forward in time, uh, he he uh, had some other misadventure that made it impossible for him to return. But there's no indication in the book that um, the time traveler finds anything attractive about the future that he would want to return to. I mean, it's it's almost contrary to the point of the book. The book has him escaping uh, from that time after uh, Wiener is lost and the Morlocks have dragged his time machine inside their little structure there, their little vault. And they do that to, to try to capture him but he gets into the machine and he travels forward in time. And I think he travels forward like 300 million years or something like that. Anyway, he travels to the very end of the planet right. and sees that human beings have evolved into crustaceans, crab-like creatures. Uh, I guess he's su suggesting, uh, he takes one stop where he finds that, uh, I guess the Morlocks have, have evolved into these crabs and the Eloys have developed into some butterfly-like creatures. Uh, and then he goes forward even further, and uh, the creature that he describes finally uh, in, in what is apparently a dying planet is just like a mass in, in the water. So I guess he's suggesting that 
whatever evolved from humans is, is returning to the to the murky depths. But uh, it's not an upbeat novel at all. And it really was more about H.G. Uh, Wells. Who's, uh, you know, I, we could we could probably do several episodes just about H.G. <laughs> yeah. Wells because he's an extraordinary figure. Uh, um, he he came from uh, uh, you know a, a lower class uh, family. His mother was a servant, I guess, and uh, he didn't receive much of an education. And then eventually, he, uh, after begging his mother, she somehow found a way to get him a job as a teacher's assistant. And with the access to the books and the school that he was working in, he educated himself and just became like this. Uh, I mean, apparently he was always a genius, but he he became like this star pupil. Uh, and I mean, the guy was writing novels when he was 10, if you can imagine such a thing. And that one of the no those novels survives and it's actually readable. It, it, it reads, I mean, probably better than what I could write. <laughs> so he was a very important fellow in, in, uh, in, uh, in British literature, at least during that time. And he was also an historian. One of the best-selling books of the 20th century was his uh, overview of history. Uh, uh, he wrote a, a, a multi-volume history of the world, starting in in uh, prehistoric times. Um, but he was, uh, with that background of coming from uh, you know a low birth, not being a uh, not being born into a wealthy family, he was uh, somebody who was trying to make a point in in uh, the time machine about how. Uh, uh, Britain and the world have to get beyond uh, class, the class system. Yeah. That uh, that was going to lead to the aristocracy developing into these weak, fairy-like creatures who uh, were good for nothing, basically, had no skills, uh, had no ability to make their own clothes or raise their own food, and completely dependent on the Morlocks, the workers who were hiding underground operating the machines, uh, but also eating the Eloi. Uh, the Eloi are their source of sustenance. Uh, so they, uh, the message he was sending was, we have to end that sort of class division and, uh, you know, uh, otherwise the future is going to be dark. And of course, the, uh, he was also frustrated by the world wars uh, he predicted them uh, rather uh, remarkably accurately. Uh, we, we also talked about things to come. The movie, yeah. uh, he, he wrote a movie script for Alexander Corda that was made into a film. And I guess at a later point, Wells turned the, the script, which I guess was really more of a treatment, turned it into a, a book. And he made a lot of pretty, you know, accurate predictions. He apparently was the one that. Uh, predicted the atomic bomb uh, in one of his books. He described something that was you know, made at least one member of the team that worked on the Manhattan Project, uh, convinced them that uh, using uh, uh, atomic fission could, uh, you know, could be used as a, as a, as a weapon. Uh, so, uh, you know, he was way ahead of his time in a lot of things. And he was very, uh, very despairing towards the end of his life because 
you know, nobody seemed to be listening to him. Uh, we kept we kept having world wars, uh, which must have been very saddening to him. He was a big proponent for the idea of having some some sort of uh, world state, a world government. But he was uh, very um, disappointed in the League of Nations, which existed uh, in his time. Uh, I guess he died before the UN, uh, the United Nations, was created. But I'm sure he would have been disappointed in that as well. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's unfortunate as well that we're living in a time now where we're seeing all these things playing out again. So it's a, as if with all the young people that read The Time Machine or saw the, <laughs> yeah. the movie in class, here we are still going through the same process with a Hitler-like figure uh, attacking countries around him, killing innocent people, uh, the whole litany of horrors that we saw uh, you know, almost 100 years ago, now playing out again in our time. Yeah, I, wonder, I just wonder if you ever thought that he, like, even though war obviously happened before he came around, I mean, almost felt like I'm putting these ideas out here and that's the reason we're having, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Well, like some kind of guilt <laughs> of like, oh, this is all my fault because I told everybody about the well, atom bomb or whatever. <laughs> well, but that may be actually the pro the great, risk that anybody who tries to predict the future uh, takes right if you predict it and it's a, if it's a good guess then it may become a self-fulfilling prophecy people may yeah. feel that oh is that the way it's supposed to go okay <laughs> let's do that yeah uh, but i have a feeling that as great as his influence may have been it didn't extend to the point where uh, adolf hitler was making his decisions based on <laughs> it's just that you know what i what i would say with my limited understanding of history in the world uh i would say that if you have an understanding of human nature then it's much easier to predict these things yeah you don't have to get into the details of specifics you can just sort of guess on the way human beings behave on a day-to-day -day basis in your own life you can sort of extrapolate from that and, and guess have a pretty good pretty accurate guess of how the world is going to go uh, as far as predicting uh, the creation of the atomic bomb, or apparently he also predicted uh, the development of tanks in one of his stories yeah. pre-World War I. Uh, but all of those things, those technical things, or scientific things, came from his uh, vast knowledge. He was apparently somebody who read a tremendous amount, was you know, uh, fluent in a lot of different things. Uh, so he... he uh, he was able to draw upon that vast store of knowledge and coming up with stories. The interesting thing is, even though there's some discussion of uh, the science of time uh, and the science of time travel, the idea that time is a, another dimension, ideas that might not have been in uh, circulation very widely, at least among the average person back at that time, and the difficulty that... Um, that the character, of course, the movie was made in 1960, so a lot of these things by then, the public was more uh, aware of certain scientific concepts. But the difficulty he has in explaining the concept of time travel to his dinner guests, it was probably pretty accurate for that time, 1900. Probably most people didn't think in those terms that time could be uh, considered another dimension and that it might be feasible somehow to move through time. Uh, I don't know uh, if, I, I don't know the exact uh, time when uh, 
uh, Einstein came out with his uh, theory of relativity. But the idea of space-time uh, seems to be touched on in the uh, script of the movie. I don't recall if, if uh, there's anything like that in H.G. Uh, Wells' book. I mean, if I understand space-time, the idea is that uh, there's a, a continuum that uh, is, uh, is actually... Uh, this, this is where I run run into trouble trying to explain yeah. science. <laughs> well, the bottom line is that uh, one of the characters in uh, the, the Sebastian Cabot fellow, the, the his his big the, the fat guy that's given them the most trouble, yeah. uh, when he says the time the future exists or the future is set, it turns out he may not be too far wrong. Right. The time, time if the future does exist and the past exists and present exists and we're all at different points along this continuum so the idea of time travel even though he doesn't give any sort of explanation in the book of how this could possibly be done by somebody in the victorian era uh, and the machine that he describes sounds more like the sort of thing that a magician would use uh which really comes across in the movie oh yeah uh, you know, he takes it out of the big, the big handsome box. <laughs> the box, yeah. lining. I always think when I see it, I say, gee, that's remarkable that you go through all that trouble to make the box with the lining. <laughs> yeah. and the machine itself has all sorts of inscriptions, it seems, on the on the wheel behind him. Uh, and it even has a little nameplate with the, and a little joke there that it's manufactured by H, uh, H.G. Wells. Yeah. Uh, you see, the, the, the craft in the movie seemed like was probably modeled more of the 1900s yes you know what i'm saying like not as there's no like no there, as far as i can tell there's no electricity in the thing at all like i don't know what's making everything spin or light yeah, up or it's, it's never gone into making it his, his uh display go on his clock you know what i'm saying right and yeah and, and then not to mention he also has a smaller version that also works right that is able to turn on put a cigar in and turn on and make it go right, right. <laughs> into the future yeah, and, and the, one of the interesting little uh, conventions in these types of movies, and you see them in other science fiction movies where they don't want to get too deeply into the science that the inventor uh, has used, is that the uh, inventor seems almost as amazed by the machine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like uh, when he tests it out, he's, he's describing what's happening as if it's unexpected, you know, which is really quite different from what we talked about. I didn't get a chance to watch Primer. Uh, we talked about the uh, what a dramatic difference there is in uh, a movie made in 1960 and a movie made, I guess that was made, what, in the early 2000s? 2000s, yeah. And every aspect of Primer is completely different. The way the storytelling, the, the filmmaking techniques, every aspect of it is entirely different from the way George Powell was making movies back in 1960. Yeah. And the ideas in Primer... Uh, so dramatically different from what H.G. Uh, Wells was on about when he was writing his book. So uh, th that the simplicity or the naivete about uh, how a machine like that might actually work. Apparently, this was the first book uh, that had a, a time traveling machine. There were tra time travel stories prior to that. Ch uh, Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol is an example. Yeah. Um, uh, 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 Irving, uh, what's his name, wrote um, Rip Van Winkle, mm -hmm. and who else? Uh, Mark Twain wrote a Connecticut Yankee 
in King Arthur's court. But all of those stories have the time travel occurring accidentally or through some unknown means. Uh, this was the first one, I guess, where somebody said, I invented a machine that allows me to travel, move through yeah. time. And, and, the, and with the story, when you're watching the movie, the you don't really need to know how no. it's work. the machine's working. It's just like a, a who cares it works. Right. <laughs> I don't, I'm not sitting there going, well, how's that working? Come on, right. that's stupid. No, you don't even care. You're just like. It becomes amazed. more like a fable yeah. or a fantasy. And it really isn't what H.G. Wells was interested in, in telling the story. His, none of his books were like hard science fiction where they talked about the technology a lot. He was using that as a way to uh, make his point about uh, how evolution may not necessarily be progressive. And that was apparently an idea at the time. Uh, one of his teachers was a, 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 a big defender of uh, Darwin's uh, theory. And uh, apparently at the time, those who accepted Darwin's theory, uh, they believed that evolution meant things are always going to get better, that you're always going to be evolving into something superior. Yeah. And the idea of survival of the fittest, which I don't think was a Darwin, Darwinian term, I think that was something, something somebody else came up with. All that meant was, given the environment, whatever creature is best suited to survive and to multiply, that's going to be the creature that, that dominates. Uh, so H.G. Wells' uh, attitude was, it doesn't necessarily have to be that we're going to evolve into something better, something superior. Uh, we may actually evolve in the other direction. And he has us eventually evolving after we get past the Morlocks and Eloy stage into crab-like creatures. And it's funny because I see a lot of articles online, particularly in the science magazines, about how uh, apparently uh, over the course of history, there's a lot of creatures that have sort of reverted towards a crab-like state that it, it's possible that for whatever reason <laughs> uh, uh, crustaceans or cra crabs are a uh, maybe it's because they happen to be very resilient they're better able to survive so what wells is saying is we shouldn't count on things going well we're not necessarily going to become godlike creatures as we did at the end of 2001. 2001, yeah. <laughs> in a sense, you could see as a little bit of, a, of an answer to Wells. Well, Stanley Kubrick seems to be, and Arthur C. Clarke seem to be far more uh, uh, enthusiastic about the future and, and far more optimistic than Wells. Uh, but Wells, of course, came from a background that uh, sort of put a, 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 a feeling of pessimism in, in deep inside of him, he, he, given his struggle and given what he saw in his life and the unfairness of life and the unfairness of the class system and the horrors of war, uh, it was very easy for him to be a pessimist. Yeah. <laughs> the other interesting thing about uh, Time Machine, the book, is that uh, there is no romantic angle. And the reason why that's interesting, and it goes to show you how you can have mistaken impressions. When I was writing my notes after watching the movie, I thought that the, um, the movie was an accurate representation of Wells's attitudes about uh, the sexes uh, because I hadn't yet gone back and read, reread the book. 
when I go back and reread re re the book, I see that there really isn't any uh, romantic angle and there isn't much you can glean from it about H.G. Wells' attitude about uh, the sexes. But it turns out that H.G. Wells was an early feminist and many of the women from his time that became feminists, uh, they cited his later books as the, uh, an encouragement for them. Uh, so that's remarkable. He was ahead of his time on that. Yeah. But another interesting thing was he was absolutely scandalous in his sexual behavior. Uh, he married once and determined that his wife wasn't interested in sex. She was a good Victorian woman. She didn't want to have <laughs> much sex. And so he went off with another woman who was a little more accommodating and lived with her for quite some time before getting divorced from his first wife. And then while married to his second wife, who apparently was much more of his soulmate in other matters other than sex, uh, she decided she wasn't that crazy about having sex all the time either. <laughs> so she pretty much gave him free reign. She let him go off yeah. and have, have uh, sexual encounter. And apparently back in his day, he, and he described himself as, he was like the Don Juan of the literary set. Uh, a lot of pretty famous, well-known women uh, who ended up in his bed, uh, which is sort of surprising because to look at him, you wouldn't think that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anything particularly desirable about him but perhaps it was the force of his personality or his intellect that interested him i don't know or if he had tabloids back then that he was in all the time <laughs> well to me that's the most remarkable thing is apparently he did all of this right out in the open and it didn't seem to affect his uh career at all yeah he was uh you know completely open even when the, the second woman that he was living with uh became pregnant one of the women he was living with at some point became pregnant and they still went about town with her clearly pregnant and they let you know i mean you have to admire that although in a way you see a little bit of the same sort of attitude uh, that we talked about with people like gene Roddenberry and uh, the hammer guys yeah. uh, which is these um, older men that are interested in the idea of free love because they think it means free love means that all these young girls will be free to have <laughs> yeah. sex with them um but he he did seem to have for his time some pretty advanced and progressive attitudes and uh i think it's almost inevitable that he had an influence uh exactly how much and where uh, and, you know it's hard to say but he was one of the most popular authors in the world in the english speaking world at least for for uh, you know uh, from the 1900s into uh, 19 i guess he died in the he must have died in the late 30s early 40s yeah. so that's a, a lot of books and a lot of potential influence that he might have had uh, so he's a very interesting figure george yeah. powell is an interesting figure as well i wouldn't put him quite on the level of, of hg wells <laughs> but uh, he was influential in his own way and he was a genius in his own way in terms of devising these techniques um the fellow one of the fellows that worked with him who was part of the team that won the oscar for uh time machine uh, warren i think it's norman warren i'm not sure uh anyway uh he described how when he went to work well actually it might have been ray harry house i'm not i'm not sure one of the guys that he worked yeah. for him on puppet tunes said that he got a 
breakdown that had actually been done by by George Powell, uh, a chart with all the gestures uh, second by second basis. I don't know what they call this. You see these uh, floating around online for the Simpsons sometimes. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen them, but they actually have to have it, the whole thing timed out. Yeah. A chart that shows where everybody should be and what sort of expression they should have. And he would have like uh, George Powell, like little drawings of the shape of the eyes of the character going down for each change. And, and that's the work of genius, you know, oh, that yeah. somebody could mentally plan everything out like that and just hand it over to somebody. Say, just do this and I'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. and he seems to have been a very soft-spoken, uh, pleasant person. Uh, everybody that speaks about him and uh, says that he was just a, a charming gentleman to be around. Uh, I thought it was interesting that uh, towards the end of his life, he acquired a book uh, called The Disappearance. And he had uh, tried for many years uh, towards the end of his life to get this made into a film. And apparently it would have con concluded quite a bit of pornographic content. Uh, there were some, uh, I don't have the issue here, Cine Fantastique uh, did their time travel issue by number four in the history. So they, they apparently considered yeah. this to be <laughs> him and, and, and that movie to be pretty important. And they were paying attention to him right up to the end of his life. They had one article where they had all these production drawings uh, of this movie that he was playing, The Disappearance. And I was kind of startled when I first saw it because you know, George Powell, the puppetoon guy, and he's doing <laughs> pornographic movies. And that sort of seemed to me to be similar to, again, what we had been talking about with those other guys, uh, including Alfred Hitchcock, because he also had a, a sexually frank movie that he was planning yeah. at one point. Uh, they get into their 50s and 60s or, or maybe even later, and they begin to feel that there's a sort of party going on that they want to be a part of. Yeah. Uh, now. I'm not going to say that he wasn't interested in the philosophical uh, aspects of this story. It's a, apparently the story was about uh, people wake up in a world where um, men and women have been separated into two different timelines or two different universes. And the movie jumps back and forth between the two worlds to see how those all female and all male societies are developing. But uh, Obviously, George Powell had some interest in uh, the uh, role of the, of the sexes, how men should behave, how women should behave. And uh, I was surprised that given the fact that H.G. Wells was so uh, uh, ahead of his time and his, and his thinking about sex and about uh, f feminism, that there isn't any important female character in Time Machine at all. But Time Machine was his like his first novel. I mean, his first novel as an adult. Uh, so maybe he just hadn't. I'm sure the later books, which we don't really see. The, I mean, the later books that he wrote after he stopped writing all those important science fiction books, he went on and wrote a lot of books yeah. that were more like uh, uh, social uh, commentary books, uh, probably closer to what Dickens was doing. Uh, we don't, those aren't in, I mean, I'm sure they're available somewhere, but the, those yeah. aren't the books we were taught in school. We mostly focused, we mostly remember him now for his science fiction books. But uh, even with War of the Worlds, the social commentary there is him looking around and seeing what 
colonialist uh, Britain was doing to people around the world and saying, what happens if somebody comes and does that to us? What, what would that right. be like? Uh, and that's kind of an unusual uh, attitude for somebody in this time to have as well, to recognize uh, we're not doing things the way we should be, that this isn't right. And to, and to create a story which sort of says to people in a gentle way, how would you feel yeah. <laughs> if this was happening to you? Um, uh, a lot of that is lost, of course, in the movies. The movies, especially like War of the Worlds and other alien invasion movies, tend more uh, towards uh, a message of look out the aliens are coming for us and the yeah. aliens are usually you know those folks overseas <laughs> um but uh yeah it, it, it his commentary is the, the points that he was trying to make are unusual for his time and what's even more unusual and maybe this is the power of science fiction is that he could be saying these things and he was still a very popular author there's nobody trying to shut him up, shut him down, you know. Uh, so that's remarkable too. When I was watching the movie, I thought I so many instances where I flashed on scenes in Star Trek of William Shatner explaining to some <laughs> empty-headed woman of the future, you know, writing in the sand, you yeah. know, drawing pictures of the stars, yeah. where from out there, you know? <laughs> uh, or uh, more than anything else, you need love. You know that sort of stuff, <laughs> explaining sort of like basic concepts so, uh, to uh, these ignorant uh, folks that uh, of the future that have forgotten about all ignorant yeah. aliens. That have... <laughs> but I find that um, having a a person from the past trying to explain to people of the future how things should be sort of rings false uh, because. After all, it's because of guys like him that things are the way they are. But yeah, yeah. I mean, H.G. Wells was unusual in that he was trying to warn people and trying to change things. But uh, to see Rod Taylor in the 1960 film uh, sort of grabbing the Eli and saying, you, you, don't you realize, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> uh, which is another thing that William Shatner had in Captain Kirk had a tendency to do. He loses patience and start grabbing folks, you know. Uh, <laughs> That that doesn't really it doesn't I suppose that's a slight flaw, right? The well, last a flaw, or is it just a he, he was expecting uh, to go and find some you know perfect utopia, and when he gets there and it's completely destroyed, he just loses a shit and tries <laughs> to blame them for it when right. you know it's really his fault, kind of you know. Right. Well, it's certainly the fault of his generation. Yeah. I mean, I mean he, he was obviously building technology that that would have eventually brought down the rest of the <laughs> the world you know he was a scientist type that's 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 where time travel stories really get kind of loopy <laughs> yeah. because when you think about it as soon as he created the time machine and gave people that meant that it was possible so if he was able to do it then somebody else would have eventually been able to do it which would have meant that whatever future he's visiting would have somehow been affected by time yeah travel and would eventually. have had a time machine yeah, yeah. <laughs> So it it does the invention of a time machine, which as far as I can see is an impossibility, uh, probably is best used uh, just as a, a device to tell a story. H.G. Wells, interestingly, doesn't have his time traveler going back in time. No. He uh, is not interested in, in visiting the past. 
he's interested in going into the future because he's trying to make a point about how things may go in the future so uh the whole time travel aspect of it uh he he made it more convincing more believable for his readers because they were living in an age where there were constant inventions that were changing people's lives so he made it more believable than um you know being visited by the ghost of christmas past yeah <laughs> uh, but he, he wasn't interested in the science of that he was interested in just somehow getting somebody into the future so he could deliver this warning about how things are going on the other hand uh somebody of that time might say well what difference does it make how things end up in 200,000 AD yeah or 3 million 300 million AD or whatever <laughs> you know what difference does it make if if species eventually I mean we know the universe is going to end eventually or at least uh, our galaxy our solar system is going to end or dramatically change so it won't be able to support life so what difference does it make and then of course you have the George Powell approach which is one of the uh, uh, one of the movies that he made that was uh interesting uh, along these lines was when worlds collide where the whole thing is about realizing that the world is going to end and the great race to develop a rocket ship and to get people you know off yeah. to another planet um i can't help but think that people like um elon musk must have paid a lot of attention to these films when he was a kid because that has a very rosy ending the end of when worlds collide has uh, the uh, apparently all white uh, crew i think as far as i can see <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, stepping out into the new promised land and it's a, a painting with you know beams of sunlight and and pretty flowers and you know it just looks lovely uh and of course it's, there's nothing in our nothing that is within our reach nothing that we could travel to in a reasonable period of time that would be anything like that but um the threats that we face now from people like elon musk and peter thiel or uh, long-termerists is that they're going to they're saying basically we shouldn't care about things like climate change we shouldn't care about famine and starvation or uh, uneducated masses mm. and um, we should all be focused on putting our resources into uh, helping to establish that distant future society that will be made up of all white people yeah. people educated people wealthy people who've been able to escape the mess that was made on earth uh and that's become a very dangerous uh, uh philosophy that's afoot right now amongst uh, you know it's popular among many very very wealthy people who have the ability to to change things in a significant way and put us on that course one of the reasons why uh elon musk and peter thiel is it thiel or teal i think it's pronounced no. teal yeah i think so yeah you know the billionaire guy that uh that uh, donated so much to trump's campaign and right uh, the reason why they find that attitude uh the sort of philosophy that trump puts forward the reason why they find that uh to be something they want to support is because they're already thinking way beyond that they see this as like a short-term thing they don't want to see money time and resources being wasted on solving climate change they want all the money to be plowed into things like 
making the wealthy is even more wealthy so they can have complete control over the political system, uh, which they almost do now. Uh, silencing, I mean, this is something you see, uh, uh, there's a lot of movies that you could say are sort of uh, time travel movies without a, liter literally being time travel movies. Yeah. Like Remains of the Day, uh, which is a movie that Anthony Hopkins uh, starred in, I guess, in the 90s. And that's about somebody who goes to a period as a butler serving uh, a fellow, I guess, just on the, on the eve of the Second World War, uh, a, a British aristocrat who has influence in, in the government, whose attitude is, oh, we shouldn't be too harsh on the Germans. You know, let's try to make friends with them. Let's try to uh, help them out, you know, uh, without realizing that he, they were playing him for a fool. And... Uh, at the same time, Anthony Hopkins's character, he's sort of uh, missing all the opportunities to have a life uh, with the Emma Thompson character uh, because he thinks that it's, uh, you know, he wants to maintain a, dis a certain discipline that he feels a butler should have. And then later in his life, after his former uh, boss has passed away, and he tries to go back in time, in a sense, and reestablish a relationship with this woman. And uh, you, when you, there's a scene in that movie where a bunch of rich folks uh, are sitting around with their brandy and cigars, and they call Anthony Hopkins, uh, the butler, into the room, and they sort of mockingly ask him a bunch of questions about uh, how the economy works and things like that. And of course, he has no answer to any of it. Uh, and they say, see, and this is what, these are the people that are making the decisions. Yeah. Ignorant people. And so there's always been that strain among the wealthy. They're, they're perhaps resistant to the idea that H.G. Wells is putting forward that you're going to eventually end up like the Eloy. They're working every day to, to prevent that. And they work to prevent it by generating uh, enormous amounts of wealth that give them complete power over everything. Uh, but the one most important thing is keeping people ignorant. Uh, the destruction, and we see this with the Republican Party now, with the way they're trying to undermine uh, public education, uh, ongoing process of trying to push ideas like homeschooling, where you can keep your kids home and teach them yourself, yeah. teach them whatever ignorant things you believe, you can pass that on to your kids. <laughs> uh, and the reason is because they want to keep the workers, the future Morlocks, as dumb as possible. Yeah. The interesting thing about HGL's idea was that the Morlocks are uh, uh, at least clever enough to keep the machines running. Now in the in the book, was there like a, a like a more intelligent Morlock leader? Because they they kind of done that in the remake where oh that was I think, a, it, was, I think it was Jeremy Irons played like right. a like a more intelligent Morlock that like controlled Dam. But yeah, I just I didn't know if they I didn't know if that, if that came from the book or if that's just something they added to that. No, remake. that definitely is something that was added. I guess the uh, the, the the movie uh, that was made from that uh, the Jeremy Irons movie yeah was directed by supposedly directed by Simon Wells, who I guess is a grandson or great-grandson of... Yeah, I think I remember hearing that. Actually, apparently, uh, Gore Vabinsky, the Pirates of the Caribbean director, Yeah, he was an uncredited 
assistant uh, on that. <laughs> I haven't seen the film. Uh, it's not very good. I wouldn't recommend it. Yeah, I haven't heard very good things about it. But I guess they must have figured, well, you have this is a two-hour movie now, and the book itself is a pretty slim volume, really. It's not a, a very complex or, you know, it doesn't have a very elaborate or complex plot. One of the things I appreciate about the movie, the 1960 uh, movie, is that it is very straight ahead. You know, yeah. you get right into it, and there's no mucking about, and there's no subplots with um, romantic interests or any of that sort of stuff. Uh, we understand the premise almost immediately, and he's off on his travels immediately. And you know, the the uh, uh, there was another version that was done for TV. I think NBC did a TV version in the seventies. The desire to stretch things out usually has a bad effect on stories like this yeah. because uh, they the the original story just isn't that. It's not like a Dickens thing. We there can be endless uh you know uh, uh variations on a theme it's it's pretty much one idea and, and uh, when he makes that point then the book is over you know and to to add in a lot of other stuff would just be a distraction so i was surprised to see that jeremy irons was playing the yeah. morlock because i couldn't <laughs> i couldn't imagine what what he would have to say you know? yeah now i did love in the in the 1960 version I would say the only what I call exposition that we get. I love the fact that it was the spinning discs, which. The war between the East and West, which is now in its 326th year, has at last come to an end. There is nothing left to fight with and few of us left to fight. The atmosphere has become so polluted with deadly germs that it can no longer be breathed. There is no place on this planet that is immune. Right, Which, yeah. to me, it would mean like, hey, look, CDs are coming. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he predicted so many things. Yeah. <laughs> I don't remember if, uh, I, I guess Forbidden Planet was before the time machine, right? Forbidden I Planet believe, would have been in the 50s. I believe so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so they have a similar thing too, right? They have the machine that, uh, that uh, they put on that teaches them about the, the past of the uh, Krell civilization. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of these ideas, I guess, are floating around in in science fiction, uh, probably in pulp magazines. The idea that they kind of reminded some... me of the uh, in Superman when they had the yes, that's yes. another yeah. right, right? <laughs> yes. Uh, so uh, if you want to get a lot of exposition out there quickly, you just come up with some sort of spinning lit, disc, spinning disc, <laughs> or a lit crystal, or something like that, or a headset that you can put on, and that just tells everybody what they need to hear. Um, now you said you said you watched you've watched it again recently. Do you find because when I watch it this time, I still don't think that it's campy at all. Well, I think it holds up as a kind of a serious, not serious, but it's not. You're not laughing at it. As well. No, I wouldn't it's say enjoyable, I, but you're not laughing at it. I think that um, it's interesting because one of the critics who reviewed it said that he thought that one of its weaknesses was that it lacked uh, comic. Uh, what's the term that we used to use uh you know to have a, a little comedy uh, it, it it had romance which some of the critics thought was a bad idea and i agree yeah but it didn't have any uh, uh, intentional comedy i mean the alan young characters slightly yeah, pretty good yeah alan young would go on to be quite a popular uh tv comedian and instead he did mr ed of course right he, yeah and he had his own TV show, The Alan Young Show, for a couple of years. 
uh, and apparently in the uh, 80s, I guess, uh, him and uh, Rod Taylor got together on a short sequel that was done to put at the tail end of a documentary about uh, the making of the time machine. Oh, really? And they did it in costume. And they, the premise was that uh, the time traveler comes back and tries to, since he knows that Philby is going to die in the war, he tries to convince him to come come along with him on uh, yeah. his time travels. I haven't seen that. It's not, it doesn't seem to be widely available. It's not available on YouTube. I did see that Amazon is offering it. So if you want to purchase it, uh, if anybody is interested in seeing the, what happened. Uh, I mean, I, I always think that this is one of the problems with time travel stories is that nothing is ever set. As long as you have the time travel <laughs> yeah. machine, then you can always go back. Do whatever I mean, you want, yeah. It's similar to the problem that we talked about with Superman, uh, which is another time travel story, surprisingly, <laughs> as it turns out. Uh, if Superman has the power to turn back time and write everything, put everything right, then what's the point in any story that you might yeah, tell? Yeah, there's about? no, yeah. Right. Fix it all the way at the end. Right. <laughs> it's almost like the, uh, it was all a dream thing. Right. <laughs> it is very similar. And one of the strengths of Primer, and I know you said, I think, did you say you like Primer? Oh, yeah. That's one of my favorite, like, as far as time travel movies, that's the way they've done their time travels great <laughs> right. it's much more convincing to a modern audience because yeah. it seems like um they give the impression even though it's still preposterous they give the impression that this is something that guys could conceivably you know a couple of tech pros could work out in their garage yeah and uh one good thing about that movie is they really do demonstrate all the downside of time travel, yeah <laughs> including the physical effects yeah yeah because that's something that we, uh, you know, we don't take into account. We are part of time. Our biological being is embedded in time. It's, you, you can't go floating around outside of time because it's going to have bad effects. I mean, our body has a, a clock, yeah. uh, maybe many clocks. They, they talk about uh, the, um, the thing that uh, the uh, circadian rhythm or no. What's the thing that causes you to go to sleep at a certain time, wake up at a certain time? I know what you're talking about, but I can't think of the name of it. Well, the the idea that your body actually pays attention, you know, that, to uh, when it's night and when it's day, and you can actually damage your health by not sleeping at the right time and getting the amount, right amount of sleep. All of those things would sort of be thrown in into uh, into the garbage if you were able to sort of flit around through time yeah and arrive at any day uh, in the night or in the morning i mean your your uh, internal clock would be all screwed up so what effect that would have on your on your uh, being on your health is something that is shown in a primer when he starts to have nosebleeds i guess and uh, uh, at one point is that what, what happens when he starts yeah to yeah nosebleeds, yeah right? And you say, oh, yeah, this apparently is not good for you, all this time travel. <laughs> but also the, uh, I mean, the the biggest argument against time travel is, uh, I, I don't know if it was Isaac Asimov, I think it was Isaac Asimov that said, you know, if you, uh, you go back in time and you kill your father, that which means that you don't exist. So you're not there to go back in time and kill your father. Heard, yeah, so, a paradox, a paradox, right. yeah. So it's uh, as delightful as those stories like The Terminator are, where people go back in time and become their own father. 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's the worst time travel thing I, that I've ever seen. Well, and I know I'm alone on this, but I always thought that Terminator was a much more satisfying film than Terminator 2. Terminator 2 is obviously a much more elaborate film and it's, yeah. on a technical level, it's much more impressive. Uh, Terminator was uh, just a low budget uh, science fiction movie. But they kept all that stuff as a sort of kicker for the end of the story. Uh, you didn't have that in mind all while you were watching the movie. Yeah. That this guy is going to end up sleeping with his mother and being his own. You know, I don't even know what to right now. I don't even understand how that could possibly work. Yeah. Unless I'm getting it wrong. Am I getting it wrong? Well, it's um, John Connor sends Cal Reese back in time to protect his mom. And then Cal Reese ends up impregnating her with John Connor. So it's like. If he's the father that impregnated her back in the 80s, how is John Connor alive in the right. 2000s or whenever to send him back in the first place right. to impregnate his mom? Yeah, so it's kind of like a, it can't happen. Type but you, you only find out about that at the very end. So it doesn't yeah. really, I mean, it's just like a cute little thing at the end of the movie. Yeah, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't destroy the movie when you watch it, but after no, you watch no. it, you're like, what? <laughs> But when you watch the second film, that is actually built into the premise right from the beginning of the film. Right? Yeah. So uh, it, it's a little harder to, well, I mean, they're all just meant as entertainments more yeah. than anything else, but it's a little harder to buy into it if you understand how absurd that idea is. Um, I mean, I always think with things like this, the best thing to do, perhaps, is to take the approach that H.G. Uh, Wells took and not really go into the science of it, not try yeah, to go into the science of it. And to their credit, the guys who did Primer, or the guy that did Primer, I, I forget his name, uh, the director, uh, Shane Carruth or something like that. I think so, yeah. Uh, he, he doesn't really go into tremendous detail either. It's all sort of pseudoscience that they talk about. Right, yeah. But there's no, uh, as far as I can see, there's no serious attempt to lay out an idea for how time travel might actually work. Because it's probably impossible, right? I mean, it's hard to imagine how it could be possible. Yeah, no. And then this one, one watching the time machine, I liked how they done the time and space where he's in the he's occupying the same space, which is how he ends up, you know, inside of a cave, you know, because it's right. being built around him. But then he's just moving through time, and I kind of like the stop motion animation of him seeing the styles change throughout the years and buildings torn down and put back up but then it also makes you think okay so that that sort of time travel they're talking about is everything's already predetermined mm -hmm. he's basically just fast forwarding a vhs tape that's basically <laughs> it yeah. uh, you know everything happens in that in that same way even 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 when he comes back he hasn't changed anything right so when he comes back at the end of the movie or at the beginning of the movie actually because they're kind of do it they kind of do it backwards He's he him coming back and telling these guys about this stuff. I guess even though they don't believe him, except for Alan Young kind of believes him, still doesn't affect the future. Any, I guess when he goes back to the future, it's still still the same. It's still what he left before, you know. So nothing is right. like he's not really affecting anything at all. Uh, which mean which means there is no. It's kind of it gets rid of fate or. Or, you know, like destiny, like, well, I might as well not even try to do this because I know I'm not going to do that. Right? Well, that's always the problem. I have no choice in my life. It's already been. <laughs> and that's kind of the time travel you don't want to look at or be excited about is the I have no choice in my life. Right. It makes your head hurt to think about it. But <laughs> yeah. what, what you could say is 
no, uh, we do have the ability to choose our destiny. We can change. Uh, the, the, the future is not uh, set in stone, uh, but um, we're on a particular timeline. If we make a change in our behavior that causes a change in the future, then that's the new future. Yeah. So that's the future you would end up going to. And if you travel backwards in time and change something in the past, uh, that would create a problem, I would think. I can't see how you could do that. That's when you end up with your uh, Back to the Future movies. Yes. Going back, well, change, going back in time to change the stuff that messes up the future. Now you got to try to fix it. Right. But the, the I always remember that episode of Star Trek, which is not considered one of the great episodes, but they accidentally they're for whatever reason they're visiting earth in the 1960s and they oh they get spotted about the right so they have to pluck the pilot out because their <laughs> tractor beam is causing his plane to break up so they save him by transporting to him to the ship and then they have to find a way to put him back without uh him having knowledge of the future which would would cause a change in the timeline yeah and at one point uh, mr spock says well we looked into it and you never had any effect <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the loss of you is not going to mean anything to history. And that could be said probably about most of the people on the planet. Oh, yeah. Very few people by themselves are going to significantly change the course of history. So it's conceivable, I suppose, that you that some people could go back in time and fuck around with, you know, the future all they want. They never had that much of an effect, regardless of the butterfly effect that Ray Bradbury wrote about where... Yeah. The flutter of a butterfly's wings causes, you know, typhoon uh, on the other side of the planet. Right. Yeah. The implications are endless. So, <laughs> uh, that may be, I guess, but in 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 terms of uh, you know, in the course of human events, there's only certain people and certain things that really have world-changing uh, implications. Right. They don't have uh, every individual's life is not important to the history of the world. Uh, so I suppose if it were technically possible, you could conceivably go back and change things and not really have a dramatic impact on how things are in the future. Also, you would have to say uh, the evolutionary trends that H.G. Wells is talking about, those are, that's, you're playing on a higher level there, right? You're talking yeah. about, uh, well, first of all, he's saying that all of this, all of these changes in human beings are going to be the result of 800,000 years of, of evolution. Uh, I don't know if that's uh, uh, workable. I don't know if we would yeah. <laughs> change that much just in that period of time. I mean, it's hard to say because, I mean, uh, we're only, you know, I don't know how long, how long is uh, human, how long has uh, the human race been uh, uh, able to record its history? Record its history, I'm not sure. And we got, uh, it's been roughly 2,000 years since Jesus. Yeah. Um, but obviously there was a lot of stuff before that. But if, even if you put it in, uh, and threw in everybody going right back to uh, ancient Mesopotamia, uh, what are we talking about? A few thousand years? Oh, yeah. But it's nothing in comparison to, you know, the 800,000 years that he's talking about or the 3 million years that he's talking about. But I don't know, I don't know how quickly evolution occurs. It seems to me, just my gut tells me it'd probably take a little longer to actually see 
significant physical changes in, right, in their yeah. beings. But then I could be wrong. I mean, if they go back to Elizabethan era, they say everybody was much shorter back then. Yeah. So maybe there are physical, great physical changes <laughs> that we're just not paying attention to. You know, you, you can only really see those changes when you compare yourself directly to, to somebody yeah, to other people, yeah. previous time, right? So, uh, but anyway, uh, it, it, it's it's certainly a, a, an entertaining film. I don't think that uh, bits of comedy get in the way. The Alan Young's character, uh, yeah, which is I don't think, yeah, and I don't, and I don't think it need any more comic relief. It's just you know, like oh. a really like a almost like a perfect story. You know what I'm saying? Like. Yeah, in its way, uh, it's quite downbeat, you know, for its time. Uh, the, all those scenes of the air raids, you know, and the destruction of the uh, city. I have to say, for somebody who was known for his mastery of special effects, the destruction of the city is not really that convincing. Now, especially uh, when you get the lava. Yeah. <laughs> it looks not... miniature. <laughs> yeah, he seemed to... They... they even in 1960, they probably should have thought that um, atomic bomb blast, which I assume is, they would, I don't know if they called it an atomic bomb, but in 1960, they should have, uh, they should have had better understanding of what happens when there's an atomic bomb blast yeah. or, or even just a, like a blitzkrieg attack on a city, firebombing of a city usually doesn't cause uh, volcanoes, volcanoes to yeah. <laughs> and i don't know if there are many active volcanoes around in the uk anyway so. probably not but uh, i wanted to have those scenes i guess of lava pouring over everything but it wasn't really very well done considering how great some of the other special effects in the film were that was a little disappointing yeah the uh the morlock makeup what i thought was really good the way their eyes glowed when you see yes. it in the background that was like kind of creepy as a kid and of course, the stop motion of the one decaying at the end of the movie—that was cool. Yeah, that was really good. Yeah, I didn't understand it. I was like, "Was he? I guess where he's going back in time? Is that was that? He's going forward in time, and then he he reverses. Yeah, he's going back, but then it's like, well, okay, what killed? I I thought maybe he was like the Morlock was halfway in the in the machine and was being <laughs> destroyed by the time travel or something. I couldn't. Well, if I remember correctly, he pushes them up against the rock, and all these Morlocks seem to be very fragile. Push them <laughs> yes. against the rock, and they immediately die. They get knocked out, yeah. Uh, and as he's laying there against the uh, wall, as the time travel starts going forward in time, he sees, the, uh, maybe that's the reason why they had the time travel going forward in yeah, time. Yeah, go forward a bit, want, yeah. Want to see the body rot. <laughs> it's too good to pass up. And then he realizes what what he's doing, and then he pulls on, puts on the brakes and goes, starts going back in time. If I remember correctly. Yeah, uh, but that was that was a cool effect. William Tuttle did the makeup for the. For now, the was there a, for some reason I'm thinking, and I know it would have been before my time, but I'm thinking there was like some Morlock action figures, and he would squeeze them, and like jelly would come out of their eyes or something. <laughs> <laughs> for some reason, that's what it reminded me of. Every time I see that scene, well, some I kind can't... of some kind of figures where you'd squeeze them, and goo would come out of their eyeballs. Well, I know certainly <laughs> since the '90s we've had like garage kits and things like that yeah. replicas of the time machine itself which is considered a you know a wonderful piece of special effects history in, yeah. in the movies and i imagine there's been uh, masks and models of the morlocks uh, but i don't know if there was anything at that time <laughs> uh, merchandising i don't think was quite as big a thing back in 1960 yeah. but the william tuttle also 
he stuck around and, and he did the makeup for uh, Young Frankenstein, which we oh, that's right. yeah, 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 remember so, that too. All, almost all the people that did the special effects work uh, and makeup work for this were still working in the 70s. So, like the uh, the uh, some of the folks ended up working on shows like Land of the Lost and things like that, right? So, yeah, uh, they were they were able to apply their trade for quite a while. Yeah, some uh, of the some of the matte paintings in this didn't look very good either, especially yeah. in the future futuristic world. Didn't well, look too good. But one criticism I always had of this movie is that because it is a movie, movie it is this completely artificial <laughs> yeah. thing that uh, is lit almost the way they used to light movie musicals. Yeah, uh, call them movie musicals that MGM used to turn out. So you're in, and it, it could be also that uh, new uh, prints aren't being uh, uh, graded properly. They're not being darkened when they should be. But um, it struck me even as a kid when I'd see it on TV that uh, Rod Taylor really didn't need to be wasting all those matches because everything was brightly lit. <laughs> <Yeah. in. laughs> so, uh, yeah. but now, now he was he was just a classic Hollywood actor, wasn't he? He was, yes. And he's another guy who. He even had the look. He had that look of like, that's your that's your B movie sci fi yes. leading man. <laughs> and he and he, uh, I was surprised that he ended up as the lead in the Birds because I would have thought that Alfred Hitchcock would look down on anybody who had been a star of a movie like Time Machine. Yeah, but um, yeah, for a time there, he he claims, and I, I don't doubt it, that he was offered the role of James Bond. I think he would have made a good James Bond. To oh, be yeah. honest. He probably would have been better than George Lazenby. He certainly would have been better than George Lazenby. <laughs> Lazenby was a fellow Australian, and uh, Rod Taylor had all the things that Lazenby, Lazenby didn't have, which is like the ability to speak. You know, uh, uh, Rod Taylor could actually deliver a line with a certain amount of panache, uh, and uh, that was completely lacking in George Lazenby. Incidentally, I watched Modern Majesty's Secret Service uh, recently, and I don't know how you feel about that film, but I. I the things I plan to say someday about it, <laughs> yeah. I'm, not going to, I'm not going to make many people happy. I don't know how that film ever developed the reputation it did uh, over the years, but uh, it's extraordinary. Uh, I don't know what your feelings are. We'll, yeah, we'll talk I, about I, that. It's tomorrow. been a while since I've seen it, but I, I think I remember liking it, but I'm not sure. Well, I remember liking it too back in the day, but yeah, uh, <laughs> that's why sometimes you go back to these things, you know. You let a few decades pass, and you yeah, go back and say, "What the hell?" Why were you did thinking? I like that? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, my theory is, and maybe this does tie in in a little bit to the time machine, is that attitudes about what we should like, you know, what is yeah. popular, uh, what is the good thing to like, the hip thing to like, and maybe if there's any sort of a feeling that time machine is campy, uh, maybe it's just because it's done in a style, it's done with a certain approach that isn't. Uh, fashionable anymore right yeah. i mean the time machine is done almost like a stage play yeah right? the only thing that enlivens it and takes it beyond being just a stage presentation are the special effects but you could easily imagine this being reduced to a play right you could put this on for on your stage yeah high school uh drama class or whatever because i would say if they would have filmed in more in like real locations instead of i'm assuming they were on the sets everything looked like a set Yes. If they would have filmed on locations, it probably would have felt more like Planet of the Apes. Yes. Yeah. It would have had that, yeah, that sort of feel to it, that look and, you know, actual locations. And... Well, that might, might have made it 
more lasting, but even Planet of the Apes probably now, a lot of people would look at it and say it's uh, sort of an old fashioned style of filmmaking. Yeah. I mean, the 1960s were that interesting period where we were beginning to feel the influence of the European art uh, films, the new wave films, yeah. but it hadn't been completely accepted yet. So you still had the studios turning out movies that were done in the traditional way, the way that they've been done all through the 50s and 40s, 30s. Uh, or if you want, going right back to the silent era, they had developed certain techniques, not just technical processes that were used to, uh, you know, photograph the things or, or special effects techniques, but also certain style of storytelling, right, way yeah. storytelling, sort of shorthand uh, that the audiences came to understand and appreciate. Uh, and I guess that's one of the reasons why back in the day, you could go to the movies and come in halfway through the movie and, you know, nine times out of 10, you had no problem figuring out you know what's going, going on. on. Yeah. <laughs> so almost all, all the Hollywood films, the stories were part of sort of set genres that had certain rules. And it was very easy for you to quickly get into sync with it. Oh, this yeah. is a, this is a cowboy movie. I know how those go, you know, <laughs> or this is a detective movie. This is a horror movie, whatever it is. Um, and when you get into the seventies, of course, a lot of directors are starting to intentionally change those rules and do things in a completely different way. My guess is that the charm of a story like The Time Machine might be completely lost if you tried to do it as a realist thing. Yeah, which is yeah. kind of how the remake felt. Right. And, and that is also the problem, was a problem at least for quite a while with this, with superhero movies, like with Superman. It's because Richard Donner found that perfect balance between something that was a sort of splashy, big Hollywood production and just making it realistic enough so that, you know, intelligent audience could would be willing to go along with it. Yeah. Uh, and uh, even now with the big productions, uh, the only reason uh, the Avengers movies and the Spider-Man movies and all of those films are so eagerly accepted, enthusiastically accepted by audiences is because the audience, the largest part of the audience are people that have grown up playing video games. Oh yeah. So when they see those same techniques that are used to create video game worlds on the big screen, they're perfectly willing to accept it as the real world. Uh, for somebody my age, right away, I'm saying, well, well, that looks like a video game, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and I know they're kind enough to occasionally superimpose the face of the actor over the CGI figures, but that's not enough for me. I, I When I go to see a movie, I want, the thing to be real i, I yeah. want to believe that somewhere people actually were doing this in front of the cameras uh, and that doesn't seem to be the case with most of the superhero movies they're all right. completely artificial i just saw a little flash of some i don't know if it was uh did spider-man pop up in one of the avengers movies i don't know yeah yeah he, yeah, he was in them anyway they have him landing on something with a bunch of other superheroes behind him this is just a little clip that i saw and his face mask sort of evaporates he doesn't yeah. take doesn't pull off a cloth, it just sort of disappears. I don't know how they explain that. In Nanotechnology. Nanotechnology. Okay. Yep. <laughs> so they do, they do have it. But really what it is, is they say, you know, it'd be a lot easier for us to do it this way. We can easily take it off. You can see yeah. <laughs> Rather than have him pull the mask off, you know. Uh, so it I seems, guarantee, even when he pulls off the cloth mask, it's probably still CGI. Probably so, yeah. <laughs> That's how far things have gone. Right? Yeah. That's like when you learn that Batman's cape and Superman's cape are all a CGI. You know? yeah. uh, so it's gone to the point where even the things that we would normally 
accept it uh, without thinking as real, they're not. It's all, all artificial. So they created an incompletely artificial world, which is actually very similar to what George Powell was doing. Doing, yeah. Uh, it's it's a it's speaking a certain language, and you have to be uh, uh, fluent in that language. You have to be willing to accept that language. If you if you do accept it, and if you're somebody who was brought up on that language, then it seems perfectly natural. You know? Yeah. But somebody who's brought up on watching, you know, like. Uh, John Cassavetti's movies or something like that. <laughs> what the fuck is this? You know, yeah. But anyway, uh, I think that the the way they told the story is probably the best way. You know, I don't see any other. Uh, <clears throat> there doesn't seem to be any other uh, movie that has been done since uh, any other adaptation of this story that has done it any better in, in, in any you know noticeable way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I love the. Uh... At the beginning, he shows up. He's already went to the future and done all that. Now he's coming right. back, and we're like, "Oh my, what happened to him?" And now he's going to tell you the story of what happened. I, I thought that was a good little way to do that. To, oh yeah, you know, have that movie play out like that. Yes, it's and of course it it um, it's it's done in a to a certain extent. It's done, and a lot of stories have been done this way, where the the, the main crust of the story is something that. The storyteller suspects the audience might not be completely willing to accept. Yeah. So they tell it as a story that's being told to somebody else. <laughs> right. Yeah. And then the kicker at the end is like, "Gee, did that happen or not?" Uh, you know. Uh, and then they find some evidence of he like the flower that he produces, or, right, yeah. or the fact that he disappears again afterwards. And, uh, and of course, the, the little the, yeah, the the Alan Young character figures out, oh, he drugged the time machine. Uh -huh back in here or back yeah back in here so he wouldn't right. be in the cave so when he goes right. back he can you know get with his lady yes <laughs> i think i understand you see the imprint this is where the time machine originally stood but the moorlocks moved it they dragged it across the lawn, right into the Sphinx, right there. And Weena was standing here when he last saw her, right here, the same space in a different time. So he dragged his heavy machine back in here, scratching the floor, so that he could appear outside the Sphinx again. And that, I guess, to me, is the, I mean, the business about the books, I, thought, I think that's kind of a cute thing, because it, it leaves it unanswered. If they had said, oh, he took the Bible. You know, it's all yeah, good, yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. Possible use is the Bible going to be uh, with the Morlocks and Eloy. Uh, but uh, they leave that up to our imagination. To be honest with you, I can't think of any book that would have been available to uh, somebody in his time. That would necessarily be helpful in the future. In the future, yeah. And unless he has a, a book of how to repair time machines. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but um, a book yeah. of a book of how to press books since all their books yeah. were destroyed. That's right. They all fall. <laughs> but the uh, that romantic thing at the end—that's the only thing I find. Yeah. I mean, I understand. It's, it's a nice, pleasant way. Yeah, and movie. it's not too intrusive. It's not through the whole movie. It's just hard to believe that a person like that who seems completely focused and obsessed with 
science uh, and, and technology uh, who has no woman in his life other than the woman that's taking care of his house, the old lady. Um, I say, I call her, she, she's probably younger than me. She <laughs> probably, <write> yeah. <laughs> but uh, the fact that he would be willing to go back and live in that world uh, just because he's so infatuated with a, with a woman that doesn't even know how to spell her name, you know, that... Well, that's that, what guys want there, right? Well, it may be what George Powell a Beautiful, wanted. naive, you know, she'll believe anything I say. Well, Yvette <laughs> Mimi was certainly uh, quite uh, attractive oh, at yeah. that time. I could see why she had such a long career in, in the movies. Uh, she was born in California, apparently, despite her name, which sounds like she should have been born in France or something, but... Uh, you know, there was a disturbing, uh, when he's spinning the disc, there was a disturbing story about how they told the story of how the Morlocks would, you know, bring, you know, capture and bring down there and force them to mate. Mm -hmm. I just, um, this scene popped in my head. I'm just like, oh, that's disturbing. I can't believe that <laughs> in there. <laughs> well, yeah, that's the, 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 there are flashes of darkness in the movie yeah. and that, uh, that sort of, I mean, in a way it's similar to um, Dracula. There were a lot of things in the original book that uh, couldn't be done in in the nineteen thirty movie or even in later uh, yeah. film versions. Uh, but you get little flashes of them. I guess that's uh, why they just describe it and don't show. Right. <laughs> yes. They, they they work it in that way. They get around yeah. the censors by just mention having some dialogue where they lightly touch upon the nasty stuff. Yeah. But yeah, that's uh, the whole process of how. Well, the whole idea is kind of ugly. The idea that. Uh, world of the future is set up so that the workers are keeping the Eloi in a state of sort of bliss, mindless yeah. bliss, but they're secretly eating them. Yeah. <laughs> and they and they're they're clueless. They, they don't care. Yeah. They they, they hear the care. siren. They think, okay, it's time to go underground because the bombs yeah. are coming. That part of it, I have to say, I'm not sure I completely understand. Yeah. Was uh, he saying that as a result of evolution? Any sort of survival instinct has been lost? I well, I think it was the, because they learned that from the discs that, you know, the bombs fell, sirens went off, bombs fell. And I'm, so I'm assuming there was some kind of more intelligent Morlock that also knew that and said, hey, that's how we can lure them in here. We'll play the siren. They'll think, let's time to go underground. And then that's Possibly how they I have to go but, back and read But what did make sense though was whenever the sirens off, they all get in sort of like a trance. Right. Because when the sirens stop, they all like kind of like shake their head, like, well, what just happened? So I didn't I didn't really understand that part of it. Yeah, I mean the uh there's two scenes where we see the sirens, right? The first stop he makes in the relatively near future, where uh the sirens are going off because there's an attack coming, uh, some sort of uh missile air or raid, yeah. air raid. Uh, so that's one, and it seems that they're saying that uh, the air raid sirens themselves have uh, had a, uh, like the Morlocks went underground because of the air raids? Is that Something it? like that, yeah. Uh, I don't know how that would work. I mean, H.G. <laughs> Wells seemed to be, he did this in things to come as well. He seems to believe that being underground or above ground is how things are going to play out, that that's going to matter yeah. in the future. Like um, in the in things to come, he has actually the superior, uh, you know, advanced civilization underground. But the idea that we would learn how to have a completely controlled environment underground, we wouldn't be subject to 
you know, the weather and things like that. Right, yeah. Uh, but here in the time machine, he has the primitive folks, the cannibalistic um, monsters uh, living underground. So I don't know, maybe he changed his attitude about, about living underground. <laughs> uh, but um, I don't know. It's, it's just interesting that it is probably a pretty accurate uh, description of how things are playing out even now, right? Right, yeah. I mean, we, we're in a country where um, we have every person has a smartphone which has more computing power than the most powerful computers of just a few years ago yep. uh, on their belt. And they have access to all the information in the world, and yet the 90% of the people that have that don't know how to do a basic Google search. <laughs> right. I do business with people that don't seem to even be able to figure out email. You know, right, yeah. those are usually people my age or older. But uh, we are do seem to be developing with the with the younger generations into sort of self satisfied folks that think that everything can be on a computer screen or on our uh, device, and we we have no idea how to do anything else. I mean. We've gotten to the point now where uh, even when we want to eat, we just do a DoorDash or have Amazon <laughs> yeah. uh, delivery. Uh, every uh, we're not even we can't even be bothered to go out to the store anymore, right? Yeah, just have right. delivered home right. delivery. Yeah. And you look at the resourcefulness of the people that are actually filling the orders. Those people seem to have have to be far savvier and more capable and alive than the idiots that they're delivering the food to. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Even though the idiots that they're delivering the food to are actually supposedly the elite intellectual and the wealthiest. Right, yeah. So we may be heading in that direction where the people that are supposedly the intellectual elite, at least, don't even know how to feed themselves. Right. At the, the practical things. And we saw that during the pandemic, right? That... Um, because we've done away with all industry in this country, all the things that we needed to survive the pandemic were being made in another country. Uh, yeah, we didn't have yeah. any means <laughs> of, uh, you know, even making fucking toilet paper. Yeah. You know? We can't even wipe our asses, literally. You know? <laughs> so, so in the future, all the Uber drivers will go underground <laughs> and use fast food services to lure the people there to eat them. I saw, yes, I guess uh, as, as somebody who came from the working class, uh, Wells was sort of saying to the rich elite that he was sort of eventually allowed to uh, join uh, because of the success of his books. He's sort of saying to them, be careful because yeah, you're not going to matter. Right? <laughs> We're going to eat you if you don't treat us better. Hmm. Um, you know, it's it sounds preposterous, but uh, it's. In this country right now, it seems to me that we talk a lot about race, and race is certainly important, but we seem to ignore class. Class is far more important, I yeah. think, in terms of if if all the black people in the world were, were wealthy, and nobody would give a shit about their skin color. Right? <laughs> yeah. And uh, the worst things that happen to minorities are the result of the fact that they've been kept in a state of poverty. Poverty and deprived from uh, health care and education, right? Yeah. So they're sick and they don't have an education. So they can't, they don't, the basic thing to sort of join the club of, of the wealthy elite 
is to have some sort of college uh, diploma of some kind, yeah. right? That's like the basic thing you have to have in order to make a decent living. And a vast portion of the population is being denied that. And when I say being denied it, I don't mean to say that if you actually somehow as a poor person managed to come up with the thousands and thousands of dollars to <laughs> be able to go, yeah. You could then, but the problem is society as a whole is not saying we really should be putting our resources into educating this vast part of the population because yeah. they're going to be problems for us if you know we don't educate them, if we don't uh what, what the the tendency towards uh anger and frustration uh stems from the humiliation there's no no more potent emotion than humiliation and when somebody who feels like they're playing by the rules and they're trying hard they realize when they get into their 40s 50s 60s that they have nothing after decades and decades of playing by the rules they have nothing that turns to anger and that's when you have authoritarian figures hitler-like figures like trump emerge yeah. right <clears throat> because everybody says all this stuff that we've been believing up to now, it all turns out to be bullshit. That's the one thing that everybody on the left and everybody on the right can agree with, right? That the American dream, all that stuff turned out to be largely bullshit, yeah. right? It doesn't mean to say that we don't live good lives. And in, in many respects, we live lives that are much better than our parents. But in some important ways, we live lives that are considerably less secure than our parents, yeah. which is a startling thing to have to acknowledge, right? So we're already going through a process of, of de-evolution, uh, degeneration. Uh, we haven't reached the point yet where we're hiding in caves and eating Eloys, but right. you know, uh, they look very tasty. I have they to say. They do, yeah. If you let me, me managed to be the most attractive. <laughs> First, I thought it was interesting that he managed to save the the, the, the prettiest Eloy. One, yeah. <laughs> I suppose it would have created terrible complications if he had said a, a little man evil. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been way ahead of its time. Yeah, yeah. yeah way out there. Yeah. Well, I've, I've only got one fun fact about this movie, and that is the actual machine, the time machine, shows up in the movie Gremlins. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, like his, the kid's dad is like an inventor, and he's at this invention convention. And in the background, he's on the phone. The time machine is there, and the guy gets into it and turns it on, and actually, <laughs> actually disappears. And I guess actually time travels. <laughs> well, that's I know Joe Dante was a big fan of this yeah. movie, and he's uh, he actually pops up in one of the documentaries that I watched about the career of George Powell. So he, yeah. he's a, he's a big fan. I know Forrest J. Ackerman, who is the editor of Famous Monsters magazine. Uh, I think they had a replica of the time machine. At the famous monsters convention that I attended, right? But somebody made a replica of it. I guess that's the one that maybe Joe Dante used. And I don't know if the original is still around, but uh, I don't know. I don't know. Well, if it is, it probably is very, very valuable. I don't yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, it, it's it has a unique design, and it's a kind of an exciting idea, you know. So uh, it's just we can't figure out exactly how it would work. How it works, yeah. And and how does it come? Has it come to pass that these things are so elaborate? They have so much uh, finishing work done with the porcelain, <laughs> yeah. porcelain handles and yep. gems, emeralds and things. <laughs> it's pretty impressive for something the guy made in his garage. Oh yeah. But uh, so do you, rec do you recommend people watch the Time Machine? Oh yes, absolutely. I think the Time Machine and More of the Worlds are two George Powell films that you know definitely. 
uh, are important films in the history. I mean, I think probably audiences are going to have a hard time with some of his other movies like Destination Moon and Conquest yeah. of Space. They're they're a little clunkier for because we the science they're so focused on the science. See, that's the beauty of the time machine. It plays really <laughs> like a fantasy. Oh yeah. You know, you don't get stuck thinking about also setting it in the past yeah. is a good idea, right? If you set it in the present, it would be much harder to swallow. But by setting it in the past, it gives this sort of quaint quality that makes it charming and entertaining, even if you don't buy the idea completely. You know? yeah. uh, so yes, I do. I recommend it absolutely. It's it's an iconic film in many ways. The music, uh, the William Tuttle makeup on the Morlocks, uh, the time machine itself. Uh, it's a lot of fun. And, and it's sort of a perfect piece of entertainment, science fiction and fantasy entertainment. Yep, like I said, I love it. I love that ever since the first time I've seen it. It just sparked my imagination watching it in school. I'm sure they don't show it in schools now anymore. They probably oh. should, though. Possibly not. I mean, they still they probably still uh, have HGOs on the bookshelves. Yeah. Uh, unless uh, the Republicans have gotten those. <laughs> yeah, gotten rid of them, yeah. But uh, the, maybe one... The funny thing about... Um, movies is that in a sense i think we've talked about this um when we we're talking about rosemary's baby in a sense movies themselves are a form of time travel this is one of the reasons why i love movies that are shot in real places yeah because you get a chance to escape into the world uh, that they they are describing now, in a way because uh, hollywood movies were so completely artificial they were so studio bound it's a different feeling but it is also kind of an escape we're not escaping into uh, the New York of 1968 the way that we are in like Rosemary's Baby, but we're escaping into a style of filmmaking, a world that existed for a period of time, a few decades in Hollywood uh, back in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Uh, and so it is, it is almost like an amusement park ride uh, or like a, an ongoing stage show. You know, something that a show that never ends. <laughs> yeah, it's always I, there for us to escape, escape back into. And of course, for me, it just takes me back to <clears throat> eighty, eighty-one when I first saw it in elementary school. So, right. so it it's become it's it's a kind of a time machine in itself. Yeah. I always, <laughs> I always think uh, there are, there are certain movies and TV shows where time travel is done through uh, force of will almost. Like uh, I looked at two episodes of the Twilight Zone. One is called um, uh, Next Stop Willoughby, I think. And it's about a fellow who's having all sorts of trouble at work, a lot of pressure, and he finally quits. And he notices that when he's riding the train home, that if he dozes for a little while, he finds himself in this like idyllic uh, uh, turn-of-the-century town. Right. It's like a Huckleberry Finn-type world. Um, and we, that was written by Rod Serling. And Rod Serling also wrote another one, which has always been one of my favorites, which was called Walk, Walking Distance, which had Gig Young uh, sort of escaping into the town of his childhood. He's another harried man of the present day. Yeah. And through some means, uh, he uh, managed, finds himself in, in the town that he grew up in and actually interact, interacting with himself as a boy and his family you know and uh when i was a kid i found those stories kind of sappy 
as an adult, now I understand exactly what he's talking about. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you, when you watch any video or anything, when I watch any video from like the 70s or 80s, uh, I have this tremendous desire to be able to escape back into that world because it seems, I mean, they, oh, our fantasies about our, the past are always the same. Was that it was so much easier then? Life yeah. is so much simpler, and, and uh, probably that's not true, but it, at least it feels that way. We have different problems now than that we did back then, but we had problems back then. It's just that uh, somehow they seem more manageable, possibly because we were children. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? The responsibility wasn't on us to deal with these problems. We might have even been unaware of the problems that existed. So, uh, yeah, I, I sort of feel sometimes like that guy in the episode of Night Gallery, another Rod Serling story. He's a Nazi uh, war criminal on the run, and I guess he's in Argentina somewhere, and there's a museum, and he goes every day, and he stands in front of this beautiful painting of a man sitting uh, in a boat on a lake fishing, and he's thinking to himself, if I could just escape into that picture. Did you ever see right. that episode? I don't think so. Well, the kicker is, spoilers, uh, he's being chased by Israeli uh, police who are trying to catch him as a war criminal. So he races back to the museum and he thinks, this time I'm going to concentrate as hard as I can and escape into that painting. And uh, the Israeli police come running in and they, they hear a scream and they go running into the room where the scream comes from. And he's not there. So he managed to escape into the, into the painting. But what was the scream? Well, overnight they changed the paintings, and there's a painting of uh, a crucifix, a figure oh, crucifix. Okay. So he accidentally escaped into that. So now <laughs> into he's the wrong painting. Yeah. Painting, yes. <laughs> so that's a, a typical Rod Serling twist at the end. Yeah. But that part of it, that idea that sometimes you feel, gee, if I just tried hard enough, maybe I, I could somehow get myself back into that time, get myself back into that world. That's kind of a seductive feeling that I guess we all have as we start to get towards the end of our lives. Yeah. It does seem, you know, the past does always seem nicer in retrospect. Yeah. Even wars, you know. Yeah. Which you wouldn't think. But <laughs> I suppose it depends on what part of the war you were involved in. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. But anyway, yes, I definitely recommend uh the time time machine. All right. And where uh where can everybody find your movies at? Well, right now, Sleepless Nights and Demon Resurrection are both up on a lot of the major streaming platforms. Demon, is, uh, Demon Resurrection is on Tubi and Amazon, and uh, Sleepless Nights is on to, uh, uh, Plex and Amazon, and uh, a couple others that, uh, that I don't know that well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's a whole bunch of them now. Uh, oh, yeah. The movie is, and we have a DVD of it that should be coming out in the next couple of months. So uh, those two films, you can find them pretty much anywhere on, online. And the DVD for Demon is still available on Amazon. And the DVD for the restored, revised version of Sleepless Nights will be coming out in the next couple of months. Yeah, if you just Google the names, it always pops up on the side, a list of everywhere it's right. Or people can just Google William Hopkins Filmmaker, and they should be able to find all the information they need. So you can find everything on your Facebook and your Twitter. Right. I got it all up there. And thank you for providing you did the audio, helped me do the audio commentary for Sleepless Nights. Oh, no problem. It was fun and exciting. So that's now, uh, now I'm gonna be on the DVD. <laughs> yes, your your fans have reason to seek out the DVD. Yeah. So.
I appreciate that. That was great. No problem. It was, it was good. I liked it. All right. Well, this was a, that was a good episode. And everybody, thanks for listening to a podcast from beyond where we have a gone beyond horror. Yes. That's a good way of looking at it. Yeah.